Hey, good morning. How are we? Great. Uh, my name is R.D., and uh, I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Fellowship and also on the teaching team. And uh, I want to do two things for us uh, real quick. Uh, number one is uh, welcome back uh, any and all college students who have returned from their summer who are back with us. Glad you're here. Hope that uh, you make fellowship a part of your regular rhythm of college, our college life ministry uh, that we have here. Uh, so glad you're here. To parents, if you dropped off a kid yesterday or this week at school, uh, glad you're here. Uh, and hope this is helpful to you as well, just the Lord. Uh, and second thing is next uh, Sunday uh, in the afternoon from 4.30 to 7, we're having a fall fun fest kickoff party here at the church with um, games and uh, with food trucks, like not just kind of like old school potluck, but like food trucks, like cool hip food trucks. So we have come so far. And so they're going to be here. Uh, there's going to be inflatables, uh, like kind of bounce houses. And I think that uh, maybe Greg and his son Jack are going to battle in the bounce house and Jack is going to kill him and then take over fellowship and lead us in the ultimate surge of all time. I think that's what's going to happen. So you definitely want to come for that. Okay. But we will have those. It's going to be a great time. It's free. Come out, hang out. Um, and especially if you're maybe a young adult college student, you love to serve at that for an hour just to watch the kids so they don't actually hurt themselves or anyone else, then uh, we'd love for you to serve. Uh, you can contact the church about giving up an hour to serve uh, with that as well. Okay, business out of the way. If you have the Holy Scriptures, you can grab it. We are not going to be in 1 Corinthians because we finished it. Uh, and so we, I had a free-for-all. Greg said, preach whenever you want. And I thought, well... I could do gender roles again, uh, just, just to my take on it. I thought, no, I'm not tempting, tempting. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go old school to the Old Testament. If you have a Bible, turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. I know, I know, one of your favorites, one of your favorites. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning, the first 13 verses which is a passage that you may not know, but I think there's a couple verses in here that are somewhat famous. Uh, so you may know, you may know those. Jeremiah chapter two, the title of the message is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So Jeremiah chapter two, Jeremiah is a prophet and he's got a hard job because things are, things are dark. Things are dark for the people. Uh, they're not following the Lord. And God comes to Jeremiah and he says, it's your job to help bring them back. And Jeremiah, just if you read through Jeremiah, it is just up and down all over the place. This was the very beginning where God comes to Jeremiah, commissions him. And Jeremiah chapter 2 is the very first thing that God is asking Jeremiah to say to the people uh, of Israel. And so it's pretty important. The first thing he says, central to everything else in the book. And so we're going to work through this passage this morning. And I think God has, uh, there's so much here. There's so much here that I hope we can dig out. We'll see. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 first. They'll be on the screen. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. 
All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. So here, God is saying to the people of Israel, he says, hey, I remember back in the day when I let you leave, I freed you from the land of Egypt, how you followed me, how you loved me, how you served me, how you were devoted to me. That initial intimacy that you know, we can have in our life. He said, I remember that. I remember it. He actually uses the language of a marriage. He says, your love for me as a bride, as though right, God is our husband. He said, you were so close to me. It was like the, the honeymoon period, the beginning of the love that we had for each other. right? And like When you first get married and you're honeymoon, there's a lot of intimacy, a lot of closeness, right? Because you don't know anything about the other person yet. And so, of course, there's all this, like, you are the best thing in the world. I love you so much. You know, your honeymoon, hopefully, is like the greatest thing in the world. I remember uh, our honeymoon was, for the most part, really great, except for day two, where we went to St. Lucia and a long day of travel. And so the the next day, I thought, man, I'm just going to sleep in. Uh, It's been a crazy time, wrapping up seminary and uh, then getting married. And so I'm just going to sleep in. And so I slept in until 2 p.m., on our honeymoon. And all the women are like, oh my gosh, this monster. And I'm thinking, I'm sleeping. I mean, I'm, it's my honeymoon. I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping. So I get up. I get up, and my wife uh, was down, downstairs in the hotel room. And uh, she, uh, I said, hey, 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 babe, or whatever I called her back in the day. Hey, you know, good morning. And she was like, <laughs> she was like, hey, and I'm like, like, you know, and so the tone of the hay in your married life, you know. Even then, I knew. I was like, what? I'm like, hey, how are you doing? She's like, I'm fine. And I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, I have been asleep. I literally could have done nothing. There's nothing I could have. It's impossible. And that was my first lesson in marriage. You don't even have to be conscious to do something wrong, right? You don't even have to be awake. You can be dead asleep, and it's still your fault, right? It's still something you did. And I'm just thinking, how is this even, how is this even possible right now? And she's like, you slept until 2 p.m. on our honeymoon. We just started. Do you even want to be married to me? Do you even love me? You're sleeping all the time. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't know, actually. I don't know. I don't know. I'm having a lot of thoughts right now about a lot of things. I think I'm just going to jump in the ocean and keep swimming, right? This is like, what? who are you? And so this is just happening. And so she's like, how can you do this? And just all this stuff. And so I remember... I just, I'm, not a, I'm not a writer anyway, but my wife and I kept a journal on our honeymoon just for that period, which is great. And I wrote a song for my wife for that morning. I called it Pouty Face. <laughs> and I kid you not, we just went back to the journal this week and I read that, which is not even a song, it's just me writing statements about that, but Pouty Face, Pouty Face about my wife. And it was, I just, I'll never forget it, right? How we started our honeymoon. So all that to say, hopefully your honeymoon was not that, right? There was a lot more intimacy, a lot more union, and for the rest of our honeymoon and our first you know, year of marriage, man, there's so much closeness and intimacy, um, and that's what God is saying. Remember how you were so devoted to me? But the issue that we have is not devotion, but sustained devotion. It's easy to fall in love. It's hard to stay in love. Because falling in love often is not really a choice. It kind of happens to you. But staying in love is a matter of the will. It's a choice. And God says, I remember how you used to love me, how you followed me, like you were my bride, and now you've left me. And then what does God say? 
verses 4 through 8. He says, uh, hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, went after worthlessness and became worthless, talking about pursuing idols. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness and a land of deserts and pits and a land of drought and deep darkness and a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits, its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. So God says, what did I do? Right? Did I, did I change? Why did you leave me? I, all I did, I, who I am was not enough for you. Things I provided for you were not enough for me. You see the emotion of God. It can be sometimes easy to think of God, especially Old Testament God, right? As kind of this robot, right? He doesn't have emotion. And yet here we see he's saying, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they left me? Right? What, what did I do? Right? What? What did I do? See, the essence of sin is not only breaking God's law, but it's breaking God's heart. Because God does not just have arbitrary laws that are disconnected from him. When you break God's law, you break the lawgiver's heart. So it's not just kind of a rule, it's you say no to the ruler who gives us the rules. And God says, what, what did I do? Why did you, why did you leave me? Why did you abandon me? And this happens, right, to all of us, right? So many of us who are followers of Christ in the room, we, we, we love God, right? We have a heart for God. But we have moments where we really feel it, and then a lot of moments where we don't feel close to him at all, right? You go to camp, you're charged up, right? Ready to go to a mountain retreat? Here I am, Lord. Send me to India. I'm ready to go, right? The next week, Nothing. Right, We have these hills and these valleys of our faith. And God is saying, why? Why? And you know, you know what this, why this happened? is because the people who were responsible for the spiritual shepherding of the community quit asking the question, where is the Lord? Right, that's what uh, the Lord says in verse, uh, verse eight. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. Isn't that amazing? Those who handle the law, those who preach, those who pastor, they did not know the Lord. And yet all of us know that's very possible. Right? That, that we're not preaching out of any intimacy or loving people out of any intimacy with the Lord just because of duty. And that will lead to just people abandoning the faith. Right? The shepherds transgressed against me. So everybody, everybody here. So what's God's response? Verses 9 through 13. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I contend, from cross to the coast of Cyprus, and see, or send to Kadar, and examine with care, and see if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Right? That's the definition of idolatry there. They've, ex this is, they've exchanged their glory for something else, for sin, right? So the dark exchange. We exchange our glory, our, our goodness, and we pursue things which only lead to our ruin. God says, this is, this is not good. 
My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be desolate. Utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils, two sins. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, be appalled, O heavens, at my people who've abandoned me. Be outraged at this. Be upset at this. For my people have exchanged what I've given them and they pursued other things besides me. And because God loves us, he will not let us do that. And the the verses you may have heard before, which will be the central part of the teaching, is verse 13. My people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, which is the sin underneath every other sin. And number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So in the first century, a cistern, you'd build it into the ground, or even before in BC, uh, you'd build it into the ground um, so it could hold water. Because in the Near East, in Palestine, there's not much water, fresh water. So water is a commodity unlike anything else because your body needs it. And the Lord says, one, you've forsaken me when I have all of the running water and you've, tr- you've gone and dug wells that are broken, that can't hold water. Like, what, what are you doing? And yet, right, all of us, all of us do that. That's why the Bible talks so much about idols. You shall have no other God before me. Right, Martin Luther says, you cannot break any other commandment until you first break the first commandment. And an idol is not, not just like a calf that we worshiped. That is one. But an idol is anything or anyone more fundamental to your security, your meaning, and your happiness than God. It's anyone or anything that's on the throne of your heart. And we know it can be, it can be things which are not as good, right? Pornography and drugs and excessive alcohol, right? These things will just, they'll kill you. And those things can be idols because we look to those things to fill us with something that only God can provide us. But not only are those idols, oftentimes what can be most scary is the good things in our life that we roll up to become a God thing. And that becomes an idol, right? Because you and I are made to worship God, right? The scriptures say every single person, no matter what they believe, who they love, what they look like, it doesn't matter, every single person is made in God's image. Every single person. And yet that image has been fractured by sin. Secondly, the book of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity on every single human heart. So we're made with the fingerprints of God and we're made for something eternal to dwell and feel the weight of all of our longing. And the only eternal being is God. And yet every single person, every single one of us worships something. No one said this better than David Foster Wallace, who's not a Christian, far from a Christian, and yet in a commencement address he gave, he gave one of the greatest declarations of what this looks like ever. I'm just going to read it's a longer quote, but I'm going to read it because it's so good. Doesn't even know the Lord. Insight, amazing. He says this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, that's Jesus Christ, or Allah, 
or be it Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so on. Then get this, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. And whatever it was that David Foster Wallace worshipped, it ate him alive. Because he took his own life. But his insight is any, anything besides God that you put all of your weight into, at some point, it'll eat you alive. There's not a better definition of how sin works I've ever read than that. Because what does sin always do? What do idols always do? They're promise makers. And yet they overpromise and underdeliver, and then they trap you, and you can't get out. And so he says, whatever the thing is that you're worshiping, C.S. Lewis talks about it breaking your heart, because it can't hold the weight of all of your longing. It's going to eat you alive. That's an idol. He, the insidious thing is that it's natural. And why is it natural? Because we have a hole in our heart the length of eternity that only an eternal God can fill. And when we're not enthralled or marveling at God, though, we'll look to other things to enthrall us. And so many of us are pursuing idols, me included, because we're spiritually bored. We're just bored with God. Just no joy, no marveling, no wonder, no ecstasy, no delight, just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling through our life because we're just bored with God. And boredom is a great recipe for pursuing other things. Right? Never more dangerous than when my kids are bored <laughs> or completely quiet. <laughs> you think, oh, it's great they're quiet for like 30 seconds. Then you're like, oh my gosh, what's on fire, right? When you're bored, when you have time on your hands and you begin to think, what the thing is that you're thinking about, that is your God. That's your idol. John Flavel, a Puritan pastor, puts it this way. He says, ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul, and they promote sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness. We were not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration, and the Christian who goes for a long time without experience of the heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as we ought from the Spirit of God. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, our souls will go in silent search of other lovers." And all of us know this is true, right? Every single one of us know this is true. So you, you, you just have to know what those triggers are for you, right? It can be, it can be Netflix. It can be Starbucks. Uh, it can be shopping. It can be fashion, right? These are all good things in moderation. All right? I love Netflix. 
I don't mind shopping. I'll admit it. It's a safe place, right? Right? <laughs> going to use it. That's going to be the only thing you tweet. RD likes fat. Okay. Good things. But here's the insidious thing. You say, oh, those are not idols for me. Yeah, I probably shouldn't do them as much. Yeah, my phone, I shouldn't be on them as much. But think about, do you, re- like, as, as crazy as this sounds, do you, do you really go for a drink or a burger or an outfit because it, you have to have it to make you feel something? And if you do, it's an idol. And it's got a power over you, right? Do you want to continue watching? Of course. Do you want to continue scrolling? Of course. Do you want to continue eating? Of course. Do you want to continue buying? Of course. What David Foster Wallace said, our culture is built, it's the fuel our culture is built on. And it's the game and the language the enemy is great at. He's great at it. Comfort could be an idol. It's an idol for me. One of my big ones is comfort. I like my rhythms. I like my life. That's, I think, why God gave me not just, not just one boy, but two girls instead. Right? <laughs> He's like, your comfort is so bad, right? My wife was like, We're, I'm gonna, let's have a baby so you can have better sermon illustrations. It's like, that is the worst reason of all time to have like, I thought they were okay before. She's like, this is going to make them even better, you know? And so that's not why we had a kid. But after a while, I was like, that's true. And then I was like, two girls. And that will just be the start, right? To, yet my girls, they, they don't... Um, I haven't grown more selfish since having kids. It's just revealed how selfish I am. Right? Marriage doesn't reveal how selfish you are. It doesn't, doesn't make you selfish. It reveals how selfish you are. And so think of all the comforts you have. That's why people that have a comfort idol get very angry when things impede on their schedule. One of these sins is sloth. Not just laziness, but laziness when it comes to bearing the burden that God has asked us to bear in our life. I don't want the responsibility. I don't want this job. I don't want this marriage. I don't want, I don't want any of this. I just want to live my life. My pleasure is ultimate. Now, none of us are probably going to say that out loud, but in your heart of hearts, some of you, we think it. Why? Because comfort is our God. And we have to arrange our lives in such a way that we just keep getting more and more comfort. And if anything gets in the way of that, even God himself, we just get angry. Or we try and fight it with our own power and say, okay, I'm just going to be uncomfortable. And that has great effects on other people, <laughs> right? I'm just following the Lord, right? No, nothing wrong with, with going to the movies. I went to the new Westtown movie theater, loved it, awesome. Got my food right there. This is the greatest thing ever. Uh, nothing, nothing wrong with that. But if that's the thing you're going to for your water, you'll always be thirsty because it's a broken cistern. Uh, a relationship, oh my goodness, This will probably be the biggest one because people are also made in God's image. So we look to them to fill us up. But kids, kids can be an idol. Not my kids. (laughs) Of course, your kids, right? My kids, totally in their right place, right? I would never elevate Maisie and Camille. I uh, remember the girls started playing soccer this year at uh, FBC Concord. And uh, I was late for one of the games and Camille scored the first goal. I get there and my wife is like, Camille, you wouldn't believe it. I got off my chair. She scored. Let's sign her up for everything. She is going to go to the World Cup one day. Like, I can't even, she was like the the thing I thought in my heart, I never felt in my whole life. And I'm like, what is happening right now? So the game ends. We're walking to the car, and my wife is like, girls, 
uh, when we get home, we're going to watch the soccer tape. My girls are like, who has soccer tape? And she's like, Daddy took film of the game. We're going to watch it to see how you can improve for next game. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we just became those parents. We just became, <laughs> we just became those parents who are going to do that, right? And it's like, it's kind of funny, a little bit funny. We didn't actually do that, but there was a temptation, right? And, but you keep rolling that up, and your happiness is determined on your kid's success. And we're burdening a generation of kids because they will never live up to who you never were. If you want to love your kids the most, you put them in their proper place. And you don't, I don't want to put the weight on Maze and Camille to make me happy. Because they can't bear the weight of all of my longing because they're not eternal. They have a start date. Kids are a great thing. Men, they're an amazing thing. But don't make them, don't make them the only thing. Uh, romantic relationships. Woo! Anybody? Yes. Um, you know, I, um, it's just so easy to look at another person and to just say, and our culture just says, this person has got to do everything for you, right? They've got to do everything. They've got to do everything for you, and they can't. Great quote on this is from Aziz Ansari, if you know him. Um, he wrote a book called Modern Romance. It's not a premarital counseling book, so do not go read it, because he's not a Christian at all. But in the book, another amazing insight about modern day love and marriage, where he just hits on idolatry without ever saying it. He says this. He says, marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And we live twice as long. So we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. But give me transcendence. Give me mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort. Give me edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Yet give me surprise. And we think it's a given and gifts and lingerie are going to save us with that. Ideally, though, we're lucky and we find our soulmate and enjoy that life-changing mother load of happiness. But a soulmate is a very hard thing to find. He, he says, you know, um, we used to look to a whole village to provide this transcendence, this love, this meaning, this beauty. But we can go back even further than that and say we used to look to God to provide all those things for us. Not a Christian, he gets it. No person can bear this way. Look, I love my wife. Oh, she is the greatest. Celebrated her birthday this week. Love her. Wrote her a card. Had an amazing, amazing time but she makes a crummy God because she's a broken cistern and I'm a broken cistern. And when you put two broken cisterns together, you get a broken cistern, <laughs> right? It doesn't get healed. You need someone else, right? So, so anything, we could keep going and going career, success, money, achievement. These can be idols, good things to career, good things, money, but they can be your everything and they will eat you alive if you live for them. An idol always says, you have to die for me. Somehow, some way. It'll always ask for that, somehow, some way. Family, football, food, southern trifecta of idols. <laughs> Just for time, there's not time to go into that, but you know it. Family is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. 
the, the brothers and sisters of the church. That is how the Bible talks about family. Food, a good thing, can be an ultimate thing. Football, sports, good things, I love them. But man, can they dictate how we feel. Not good crowns. So, um, that is just a quick run through of, of Ireland. If you're looking for a resource more on this, Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, The Empty Promises of Money or Success, Power in Money or something like that is a great book on it um, just to learn more about this. Um, so what, what do we do with this? So helpful knowledge, maybe good. You're like, okay, I think maybe this is it, comfort, or maybe I have a control idol. Uh, maybe maybe it's, it's my, okay, thinking about that. So then what do we do, Right? How do we actually not just say, well, this is just what it is. There actually is a way to break the power of idols in your life. They're always going to be seducing us. They're always going to be around, but there is a way to live in more freedom over the things that seduce us. And what are those things? Just a couple of thoughts as we close. They all start with R, so you're welcome. Number one, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. So much of the scripture talks about how one of the primary jobs of the church is to remind each other about who God is. And that's why the gathering of the church is so important because we come together. I'm probably not saying, maybe I am, but most of the time we're not saying anything you've never heard before, right? But you're hearing it again, you're saying, man, I knew that. Lord, help me know that again. I forgot. Because we get gospel amnesia. And we forget the gospel. And we need each other to remind us, this is who you are. This is who Christ is. Encouraging us, challenging us, right? Be still and know is one of the most countercultural practices you can have in our culture. That says faster, busier, right? But so much as we don't have time to think about our idols or think about how we can change from them because we're too busy. And so to actually carve out space to spend time with the Lord, to remember him, to think about him, is so central, it's so important. The question you ask there, Lord, is just where's my heart? Like, what are the cisterns in my heart that I'm pursuing? Lord, would you help me see? Maybe you don't see them yet. Lord, what are the things that just get my energy going, my emotions crazy? Help me see those things, Lord. Where is my heart? Remember the Lord Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Prone to wander. Here's my heart, Lord. Remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Right, what did, what did the priests and the pastors and the prophets stop doing? They quit asking the question, where is the Lord? And they just assumed he would be there. Now, of course, in a way, he was there, but not nearly as close. And all of us can walk through that. Now, remember the Lord, number two, Repent of our idols. Repent, repent, <laughs> repent, repent, repent. Repentance is sweet homecoming. Don't you know that? Repentance is not something we have to be afraid of. Repentance is a command of scripture that unlocks our experience of the love of God again and again and again. Repent is literally means turning away from whenever the thing is tempting you, you're turning away and you're turning back towards the Lord. Repent, repent, repent. So that's a big thing. You have to remember the Lord. Lord, where's my heart? And then you have to do the really hard work of confessing and repenting of your sin. Lord, this, I, the comfort idol is strong for me. Lord, I just want to repent of that. I'm trying to control my life, Lord, and it's coming out in anger and anxiety towards other people. I, Lord, just help me. I want to confess that, own that, and repent for that, right? The, community, the church should be a community of repenters because this is a safe place to admit I'm a complete mess. 
And yet God doesn't want to leave me there. And so in repenting, we don't just want to repent of the behavior. That's good. But what you want to do is repent of the belief underneath the behavior. Gospel repentance says, I'm going to repent of the motivations of my heart. Right? And every time that we pursue other idols, we're saying, God, you're not enough. I don't trust you. I don't believe you're sufficient. And that's what we have to repent of. And then we can repent of the individual specific sins in our life. And the church should be a really safe place for that, right? Repentance defangs. It defangs sin. It breaks the power of sin in our life, right? Because God already knows when you repent, it's not that God's like, good to know. (laughs) Glad you shared that, right? We don't have to hide like Adam and Eve did, where they want to hide from the Lord. Repentance says, God, you already know. I'm now aware that I know I'm running to you because of the cross, knowing that you're not hiding yourself from me. And so repentance just breaks the the tyranny of sin in our life. And if we do not do it, we'll just remain trapped. We'll remain trapped. Um, Remember the Lord, repent of our idols, turn and repent because of this reason. God's kindness leads us to it. Isn't that right? God's kindness leads us to it. And so the last R is rejoice. Is rejoice. Rejoice always, the scriptures declare. Rejoice always. Rejoice literally means in the Greek to be glad in God's grace. The twin sister of repentance is rejoicing. That when you turn, when you turn back away from your sin and turn towards the Lord, you're rejoicing because of who he is. That he's loved you. That he's saved you. That he's forgiven you. But here's the deal. You You cannot rejoice in him if you aren't experiencing his grace. If you're bored by him. If you're indifferent to him. And some of you, you may, I don't even feel like rejoicing. Still rejoice because of who God is. Your feelings will catch up to your will. Still rejoice. Be glad in God. And if you're not a Christian in here, then you can't rejoice in that. The grace of God has to come into your life and then you can rejoice in who he is. Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. Oh, we have to be filled up with God's love so we aren't seduced by other things. Right? When I go to the grocery store hungry, the goldfish better look out. (laughs) And you're saying, that's what you get? Yes, it is. pizza goldfish, the best, right? When I go hungry, when I go, it's just like this, I'm going to tear up everything. And I'm, am I going to get the carrots? No, I'm going to get the pop tarts with everything on them. Right. And I'm going to bring it home. My wife's going to be like, what? Like, I was so hungry. When I go to the grocery store, I see everything there. I want to get it all. And I want to get the unhealthy stuff. When I go to the store and I'm full, I actually can get only what I need. And if you wake up every day and you're not filled in Christ, you will look for other things to fill you. And those things, look at me, will eat you alive. See, the dark exchange of idolatry says, your glory is not good enough, so pursue sin, that you could have real glory, right? That's what the enemy says in the garden. That's the dark exchange. And the great exchange of the gospel is God says, my glory for your sin. Idolatry leads to ruin. The gospel leads to resurrection. Jesus Christ says, I am the living water. 
If you drink from this well, you will never be thirsty again. You will never be thirsty again. Whatever it is, um, the broken cisterns that you are pursuing, the way to get around that is worshiping Christ. Not just repenting of your idols, but replacing them with a sweetness that you can taste of who God is. And then the taste of all these other things will just, it'll just not taste as good. And so many of us, we fall because we haven't tasted that. Psalm 63, one through eight, just says this. David says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Talk about passion. My man, David, as in a dry and weary land where there is no what? Water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help and the shadow of your wings. I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. That is the posture of someone who's pursuing the Lord, who's rejoicing in Christ, who's glad in who God is, right? Earnestly, panting, fainting, longing for more of God. I just want to pray, Lord, I want to want you more. I want to love you more. I need more of your spirit. I need more of your power in my life. I want to rely on you more than I do, Lord. Would you fill me, fill me, fill me, fill me? Because we want the Lord to say this of us. Not only do I remember the devotion of your youth, I remember the devotion of your old age. And so look, whatever it is that's tempting you, whatever it is in your life, and maybe you know what that is, and you're walking through, some of you are walking through dark stuff right now now that keeps saying this time will be better or you're saying I'm going to stop whatever it is whatever that thing is that's tempting you here is one reason why you can say no to it because Jesus is better Jesus is better Whatever, whatever it is, the comfort that you want, he can give it to you. The power that you crave, rest in his power. The control you think you need to have, he holds everything together so you don't have to. Whatever it is, fix your eyes on him. Jesus is better. He's got living water coming out of his veins for you. So quit digging and start trusting. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, Father, help us to be a people that do not say, where is the Lord, but say, here is the Lord, that taste and experience and see your goodness, Lord, that we would be a church, that we would be a people, whatever the things that are saying, come to me, we would say, no, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And if we would be a people who don't just see your goodness, but taste your goodness, Lord, that we could experience that. Oh, that we would be a people who remember you, who gladly repent and run back home to you like the prodigal, and who rejoice that you hug us and give us a glorious robe that will never be taken off. Father, help us to want you more, to love you more, to pursue you more. I thank you that though we forsake you, you've not forsaken us. 
You've come to be our living water. In your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.